This podcast was brought to you by Spartan Sports. This is The Running Game, a rugby podcast that covers a sport from the ground up. I'm Tim Gilbert and I'm joined by my great mate, Matt Dunning. How are you? Great, Tim. You've been a great week and uh, looking forward to today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you, you work hard, don't you? That's one thing that we don't point out. You work hard. You're in the corporate commercial real estate game and uh, it's this. people think of it, you know, some field goal kicking front row who loved the libation. You're a hard worker. Well, I've got to be. I've got a young family and it's not cheap to live in Sydney these days. So I think everyone's got to be a hard worker to survive in this, this world at the moment. But uh, I do my best. Maybe I maybe I should work a bit uh, smarter rather than harder, but I'm doing yeah. my, I do my best. That's all of us. That's all of us. Today we've got a great show. We've got Wallaby Ben Robinson on the program. You know him well. And former president of New South Wales Suburban Rugby and, of course, former president of Manly. He was also a referee and refereed you, David Begg. Now, Matt, what was it like on um, some of these tours? Uh, we're going to speak to someone on the program today who was actually on that Under-21 Australia tour. Uh, what was it like? Yeah, it was quite interesting. Dave Begg, he was one of the referees who got sent over to the Australian on the, the World Cup of the Under-21s in South Africa in 98. So he wasn't exactly part of our tour, but he was, sort of, he was there with us. And being an Aussie, we sort of we looked after him as best we could being a referee. But he's a good guy, Beggy, as, as much as we, he's a referee. He's a great guy. We, like, we love refs on this show anyway. Um, but that was a great tour. Like I, That was my you know, first real professional tour in many ways. You know, we had a great uh, side. You know, we, we were competing in the, the Under-21s World Cup. It's now the Under-20s, but in those days it was the Under-21s. We're going to Cape Town to play this tournament. You know, there was eight teams. Uh, the first year they had more than sort of four. There was eight teams, and it was a proper tournament. Uh, we had a great side. Um, just name a few names quickly. Other than myself, there was Sean Hardman, future Wallaby hooker, Nathan Sharp, uh, Jared Heaney, uh, Phil War, Manny Edmonds, Elton Flatley as captain, Sterling Mortlock, Bartholomew's, Don Byrne, Brendan Williams, Australian Sevens players. You know, we had a great side, you know, and Shane Dram was on the bench, you know, great player. And we also had Scott Staniforth and Jeremy Paul who couldn't tour because they were playing with the Wallabies but would have been picked. You know, they were picked but couldn't go because they were playing test, test footy. So we, we had a great side, great side, and we uh, – we uh we played and we beat the All Blacks, which was the the toughest game in in the in the howling wind and rain in Cape Town. And there was a it, it was a great running game. I think it was six three. We beat them or something like that. And um, you know we 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 had a bit of a slip up against South Africa, which meant we had to to finish first. There was no finals. It was sort of first past the post in a scoring system. We had to beat Argentina and score four tries to finish ahead of the All Blacks. And Argentina were quite a strong side. And we played them, and the build-up was was fantastic. And we scored the the fourth try with like five minutes to go to win the World Cup and um, the, the Junior World Cup. It was just an incredible tour. I actually went on after off the bench, and um, and uh, I thought I'd broken my leg, but I found out my syndesmosis. So the, the the three days that proceeded in Cape Town, celebrating our victory, I was on crutches. Um, it was a it was a, a really good trip and um, a really good time and uh, just shows how much fun you can have touring rugby and you know it was one of those tours we were very young and and there was so many uh, people that became lifelong friends we still remember that trip and uh, we definitely enjoyed uh, the three days in Cape Town after it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Those those trips, those memories, just extraordinary. Well, as you mentioned, David Begg was on there as a referee. He is coming up next on the Running Game. <laughs> Thank you. 
It's time to talk grassroots rugby and a man who was a referee. He was the president of Manly and, of course, Sydney rugby as well. David Begg, how are you? Tim, I'm really well. Great to hear from you. Mate, it's been a while. I was just thinking my first recollection of you, Dave, and there's probably earlier ones you might have earlier than mine, so I might be getting myself in trouble here, but my first recollection's big reflection when you toured South Africa as a referee for the, uh, the World Under-21s tournament. And you were sort of on that tour alongside us. Do, do you remember those days? I remember that tour very well, mate. And um, I remember having to give Speed Kennedy a bit of a heads up on what he thought the referee would be like in the final. If you remember, it was a South African referee that didn't take any crap. And um, I gave Speed a bit of a heads up and the Argentinians completely lost their cool. You guys kept yours and um, you won the uh, the World Under-21s Championship from memory. Yeah, we did. It was all did, down to me, it? obviously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, the, we called it the David Begg Trophy. But, yeah, well. <laughs> um, more importantly, this guy, he's cleaned his act up now, but gosh, he was a scallywag. Look, Phil Ward loves the line, the only only football player to lose weight and get fit in uh, post-career. What, what stories can you tell? It's only us three on this podcast. What, 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 what dirt can you give us? Tim, there is a really old adage, and I'll apply it here, mate. What goes on tour stays on tour. It was uh... – <laughs> I do remember um, in an airport, Matt, and it wasn't you, so I'm not verbaling to you, um, some – security guys two-way radios might have um, found their way somewhere else I don't know if you remember that incident but, um, <laughs> the person who was involved in that's got more dirt on me than I have on them so I'll keep my lips very quiet yeah names names won't be revealed to protect the innocent and the guilty I think yes exactly well you well you do have a legal background so uh, you would know Dave look let's have a chat about where the game's at at grassroots. You've been the president of Manly. Um, of course, uh, Sydney Rugby Union, you overlooked that for a while. You spent many years as a referee. Um, it's a game you love passionately. Tell us. Um, well, look, you know, it's fair to say, you know, just coming off a 0-12 and 12 Waratah season, um, it's a struggle at the moment and you can't sugarcoat results because rugby's a results-based industry. And, uh, Tim, the Shoot Shields had a good run for a period of time, but my concern is the whole brand gets tarnished by the lack of a winning record for both the, the Wallabies and the Waratahs. Then that must be that must affect Shoot Shield as well. And the Sydney sporting public is quite capricious. It'll go wherever the winners are. And if the game's not winning, people will find other games to watch. So I think the most important thing with the future of the game is the evolution of a winning culture for both the Wallabies and the Waratahs. The Shoot Shield will always be there and be strong because of the tribalism and the brands and how healthy that is. But even, you know, even that being said, you can't rest on your laurels. And if one or two clubs start to dominate the Shoot Shield again, as was the case probably 10 or 15 years ago, then, you know, you might have Shoot Shield Grand Finals being played in front of five or 6,000 people rather than 18 or 20,000 people. So I think there's a number of challenges for the game. Um, and I'd, I'd, make a, I'd make a more holistic ob- um, observation. Um, I think Australia has never really found its mojo in where it sits in professional rugby, particularly where the Shoot Shield sits with the rest of the rugby landscape. Every other club, never, every other country around the world never had this kind of weird, strong club competitions in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth. Um, and I think around the world, other countries have come to professionalism and done much better than we have. If you look at the path from 1995 when the game became professional to now, we've probably gone backwards more than any other country in the world. 
And so I think I think our lack of acuity in finding where we sit in the professional landscape is one of the factors in that. And so what is that, David? What 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 have we got wrong, and how could we do it better? Well, exactly on the line, Matt. I think it's pretty simple. I think we should be having our elite players playing more shoot shield. I think it's really simple. If we just take away the layers, they're playing games and they're playing in competitions over the last 10 or 15 years that in some respects aren't as meaningful as shoot shield footy. And um, it's, it's, a good, it's a great – I don't mean to interrupt, but it's a point that a lot of people have brought up, Dave, and as an observer and a, uh, someone that's covered sport for a long, long time – it rings true, doesn't it? This this whole idea of playing at club level, of playing that week in, week out, being a part of everything that goes with that rather than being these, these sort of isolated, sort of almost artificial sort of elite camps and this, that and the other. It, it, it's a lot more real, if I can say that. No, I totally agree, Tim. And Matt, you probably came in at the tail end of it, but you might remember there might have been times I remember vividly going and watching the Waratahs play on a Saturday afternoon and then refereeing on a Sunday afternoon. And some of the same guys that had played on the Saturday would be running around on the Sunday afternoon. That was quite regular. And okay, you're probably not going to get that in professional rugby. I understand that, you know, bodies have got to be preserved and Rupa have prescribed games that people have to play a year, but uh, we're not playing enough meaningful rugby. And part of the problem with that starts at schoolboy level, but part of the problem with that is um, the shoot shield are games that matter, and our elite players simply aren't playing them. Couldn't couldn't agree more with that, David. I think uh, with our pathways, we have to put more emphasis on shoot shield. I remember for that twenty ones tournament we spoke about earlier, we went into camp. I played the sad day for, for for Eastwood in first grade. The next day, I was in camp for a trip to South Africa. Well, I don't think that that wouldn't happen today. I reckon they'd be too worried about injuries. They probably had, you know, three weeks off, and and definitely our elite players, as you said, don't have the ability to play um, shoot shield enough. You, do, you you learn, Matt, your footy skills best on the footy field in meaningful games. That's where you learn how to do things properly. And as I said, it starts at schoolboy level. Where if you have a look at our GPS competitions now, um, there's probably four elite schools. CAS maybe three or four, and ISA two or three. Now, I can't for the life of me work out why those three don't merge and form one New South Wales schoolboys comp and play lots and lots of meaningful games. But we don't do that because there's a history of tradition of people playing GPS comp. Well, let me tell you, every second game in the GPS comp is now not as meaningful as it was 10 years ago. This is the problem. The code's not – it's not adapting with the times. Well, and the problem with that is you've got, you got, you got different organisations. The problem with that is, too, is also the GPS schools, in my opinion, I'll make sure I've got that, they don't want to be in a second-tier comp because they think it devalues their school and people going to their school. So there's so many factors, and I think that's the big problem with Australian rugby. But some, of, some of it's folly, isn't it? Because the bottom line is you go through all these – like half the year's trial games against some of these other schools, and, and a lot of the other schools are beating the GPS schools. It's simple. No, no, it is it is folly, and um, look, I'm, I'm my son is in year twelve at a GPS school, and but um, I I see their first fifteen play, and they play probably three or four meaningful games a year, and three or four less meaningful games a year. I think it'd be great if they went and played Waverley and Barker and Knox, and I know they'd be really meaningful games. And that 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 attitude is emblematic of the wider malaise in Australian rugby. Correct. We're not having people playing meaningful games often enough. 
Um, the Waratahs have come off the back of a 0-12 and 12 Super Rugby season. I haven't seen any of the Waratahs at Shoot Shield in the last couple of weeks. We either really mean this stuff about grassroots rugby or we don't. It can either be a platitude or it can be a meaningful contribution to the debate. And if you're going to be meaningful about it, you've got to get the players back playing and involved because if they're not, that artificiality between elite and so-called non-elite rugby creates a two-system tier, and I can tell you where the punters are putting their money, and it's not in the top tier. I'll just quickly mention, because I'd mentioned it the other day, because my son's in the 12s, and he was at that state championships at Camden, and that was replicated, and I mentioned it to you in a phone call, and I mentioned it in the podcast to Matt. I only saying it because I was there. It's done so much better than other sports. So this is this kind of thing, this sense of community, this sense of tribalism at that age is done so much better. They've they got to play to their strengths. Yep, and that stuff. And, and you know what you're doing, Tim? You're building in your under 12. Well, I think he's playing for Eastwood. You're mm. building in him the branding and livery of him being an Eastwood kid for the next 20 years. And he might not play a first-grade game. He might only play fourth grade, but he might end up being club captain. He might be, end up being on the committee. He might end up being a referee, whatever it might be. Mm. But that inculcates a culture where he stays involved in the game. And if you don't have that Eastwood tribalism or branding, he's got nowhere to go in the game. And just reinforcing your point about the uh, players coming back to club football, I, like, and this might be funny, but it's true. You know, and this was, it was probably was even more so in the 70s and the 80s. But I remember we'd finish Super Rugby, you get knocked out, you, you go and have your mad Monday and drink. And the reason why half the team have to, had to finish the end of year celebrations is because they had club training on Tuesday night. You know, it was the reality of it. You know, half the team is, we can't, we, we can't go out anymore, get a club training. So you get that pull up stumps, you know, Monday morning, sleep it and go to training. And that was just the reality of the world then. You expected to turn up a club. If you, were, if you weren't playing for the Waratahs or injured, you expected to be training and playing with club. Yep. But it wasn't like it wasn't like it was a burden, right? People wanted no. to do that. You know, you wanted to get down to training with your mates. That's 100%. what people wanted to do. Yeah, well, there's, there's some, a lot of common sense decisions that have the opportunity to be made over the next little while. There are some green sprouts. We've mentioned that. The the whole idea of Cadbury coming on board, the whole idea of the Stan um, TV deal, which will for last for at least a number of years. There are real opportunities here, and if we can get a few of these other uh, decisions made, well, the game will be moving in the right direction. Dave, I would love to talk to you all day because uh, we could talk about many, many other subjects, but would you be prepared to come on again one day? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely, guys. It's something I'm really passionate about, and you guys are great promoters of the game, so absolutely. And, you know, it's, it, once it's your sport, it's always your sport, right? You never leave the game, but... Um, you also can't sugarcoat where the game is at the moment. The game has some massive challenges and, you know, you know, it could fall off the radar unless we collectively put our shoulders to the wheel and, you know, really develop a strategy that puts the best components of our game forward before the public. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Righto. Okay. See you, boys. Righto. Cheers. Coming up on The Running Game, we have former Wallaby Benny Robinson. Are we seeing the emergence of a new asset class in the sports sector? How was the breakaway football super league to be financed? How much was that private equity investment into volleyball? What are investors' plans for Davis Cup tennis? I'm Reese Lenarduzzi, the head of advisory at Athlon Partners, a global fund and corporate advisory firm specialising in the investment and acquisition of sports organisations and sports assets. I'm also host of the all-new podcast, Sportonomic. Join me as I speak to industry experts, athletes, stakeholders and other key players to uncover the curtain engine and machinations of sport. Each week, I venture beyond the mere headlines and into the depths of the issues surrounding sports business, sports law 
sports economics and finance. Find us on your favourite podcast app. Sportonomic, sponsored by Athlon Partners. Come find out about the emerging universe of sports capital at athlonpartners.com. Too many props on this podcast, never enough. A man, of course, have played 72 times for the Wallabies. Benny Robinson, how are you? Great, Timmy. How are you going, mate? Real good. Hey, Robbo. Thanks for coming on, mate. Great to have you. Um, how have things been since retirement, mate? What are you up to? Mate, just uh, having plenty of children, up to three boys now. <laughs> um, had twins during COVID last year, so that was a big shock to the system or more of a shock to the wife, to be honest. But, um, yeah, mate, just uh, being head down, I suppose looking after children, keeping the boys well fed. It makes playing loose head prop for your country, not that I ever did it, <laughs> but I have had three kids. It would seem like a dream. <laughs> well, it sort of begs a question. I was thinking where is this uh, conversation going to go and I thought about the running game. I, I didn't do too much running during my career. I know, Tuck, we weren't the best runners, but um, I was just a bit curious of where, where this line of questioning was going down, to be honest, at the start. But being being a parent of three young boys, it's 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 difficult, isn't it? Like, a bit like Marty Coffey, the juggler, with uh, you know the, the chainsaw in there as well. Yeah, look, it's um, I know my wife did an amazing job, and definitely a big shout out to her. She was uh, she was still feeding the twins for for a good year or so, so it was um, it was a fair effort. But as you said to me, I know you're a father of three. It's a um, it's a tough challenge. You don't you don't really understand how how tough it is. Um, but, you know, they're going well. They're uh, putting on weight, as you'd expect, and they're doing the right things. So happy days. So, Benny, obviously you've three young kids. Tough to be involved in rugby these days. How do you see rugby as a whole and, and how are you involved in the game at the moment? Yeah, still a little bit involved, Tuck. I sit on the board of the uh, the Players Association under their agent accreditation scheme. I do a bit of work with Rugby Australia on the Fizzy Board, which is the Play Health, Safety and Integrity Board. Um, but no, mate, sitting back and just being a fan, to be honest, stuck these days, more than happy, more than, well, I suppose, happily retired uh, at the moment. Um, and I think at the moment things are pretty tough. You know, no one likes to talk about how tough they are, but let's be honest, it's it's pretty tough in the rugby environment these this day. But um, I'm happy being a fan, mate. You played in some very good Waratahs teams and some very good Wallaby teams. When you talk about how tough it is, how difficult is it to see a Waratahs team that could not beat time with a stick at the moment? Yeah, look, it's extremely tough. Um, I could only imagine what those guys are going through. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. I had some great guys who, um, who got my career kicked off, Matt, uh, Tucky included, um, Phil Warvick's guys like that who really, really had a great culture for the team or set a great standards around the team as well. Um, trained hard, worked hard, um, you know, played up as well, to be honest. But um, when it came time to training, they really um, set the standard there. And I was very, very lucky to, um, to have such a great bunch of blokes to really, I suppose, forge my career. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned that same experience I had, uh, Kat, was uh, obviously having the older players welcome in and being part of that. I guess it must be so challenging for those young blokes now without that sort of senior guys who've got the wealth of experience as we were lucky enough and we come in. It's just it's just be really difficult. How do you think the Waratahs, because you can't obviously circumvent that, right? So how do they go about solving their problems? How, how do you see the fix? Yeah, look, it's tough to play like Angus Bell. What's he, 20 years of age in the Wallabies? Um, mate, he's a great front rower. Um, but you, you learn so much. To your question, Tug, it's really hard, mate. It's really hard. You know, you strip out a core bunch of senior players um, who provide a lot of that go for, a lot of that leadership, you know, tell players when to actually 
I suppose, the kind of frank to shut your mouth and just work hard. But um, you know, it's tough at the moment. I think the Waratahs, I hate when people say they're going through a building phase, we've got a young team. It's no excuse. You're a professional outfit. These players would know that. You have to perform. Um, you know, they've had one of the dis- most disappointing seasons ever and they'll be looking back at each other. There'll be some hard conversations. But, you know, they just have to sit down and work really hard. There's, there's a chance for them to come out of this and go, well, we're at pretty much rock bottom at the moment. How do we get better? You know, you get better by working hard, you know, telling the hard truths at the moment and then, I suppose, ripping into each other. Well, it's true that that working hard thing, and a lot of young people here, I'm a bit older than you two guys, but they hear older people say it all the time. But it is it is the fix, isn't it, Benny? Because you missed out on being picked in teams. There were disappointment, but you just kept at it, worked hard, got better, and then become one of the best loose head props in the world. To be honest, it's, you know, as I was saying, it's not, it's not a hard job. You, you have to be very consistent all the time. And, you know, the, my current role in insurance at the moment, um, we get reviewed every year. In rugby, you get reviewed every 25, 30 minutes. You come off the pitch and everyone knows what you've done, what you haven't done as well. So um, it is such a good point to work hard. And, you know, I suppose to all the listeners, young players are listening, literally the best thing you can do is get out and work hard. Yeah, Rob, I think there's, you know, that, that's a, a, a great a great point. And from someone, you know, I, you probably don't like to talk about it, but someone who had 72 tests, uh, incredible achievement. And a lot of you people don't know that you didn't play a World Cup. And so to be able to keep your consistency to play well through those, you know, injuries and non-selections, that must have been challenging. How did you cope with that? How did you play semi-tests, play so well and have those disappointments? How did you, how did you cope with that? Yeah, look... <laughs> you know what, Tuck? It's, a lot of it comes to the people around me. Um, you surround yourself with really good people. You surround yourself with really hard workers. You know, we don't even get picked for the Wallabies. Um, 20, 2011, I was injured. 2015, Jack didn't pick me. Um, and then 2007, I think it was, injuries and didn't get selected. Um, you know, you surround yourself with good people. At the time, the Waratahs had one of the best organisations, um, one of the best winning records um, in recent history. So you surround yourself with good people, you're going to get a good result. I know it sounds so cliche, but it, it's easy to go back like an organisation like the Waratahs, who had been so successful, who had such good players that I looked up to, that you worked hard for, you never want to let those guys down. It was quite easy to do. Um, you know, one of your good mates is, and mine as well, Phil War. You look at him, such a consistent player. You know, you can never really see a standout game where he was exceptional or he was made this, you know, intercept trial, whatever it was. But, you know, you'd know that Phil, week in, week out, had a good performance. You know, he made his tackles. He was high up in his tackle percentage. He carried hard. He was angry. He looked angry. Um, so, you know, you, you look at the players like that who really, I suppose, got me through. I'm resilient as well. Um you know, you come to training time, you, you want to do your best every single time. And I think that's just the, the nature of playing professional sport or doing really anything, really. So, um, you know, you, you wanted to win. What was it like when you did win? Tell us about a winning game for the Wallabies and, the, and, and you know, everything that went with it. Jeez, uh, that's a while ago, Timmy. Um, yeah, look, it was a special feeling. I think, um, you know, you come off the field absolutely busted. You'd, you know, sit at the change rooms and you'd have a protein shake or chicken wing or three or four beers, whatever it was. And it was just a sense of relief. It's that week or weeks leading up to it. There's a plan put in place. Um, you know, there's a strategy for the, uh, for the team. So, um, you know, there's a sense of relief that you got the job done. 
Um, playing a team like the All Blacks, I think I beat them twice out of my career. Played them about 20-odd times. And, you know, to come away from those wins, uh, we're pretty special. Actually, pretty cool story. My, uh, we beat, well, I don't remember, Tuck, if you were playing, it was maybe 2006 we beat the All Blacks at uh, at a stadium Australia, I think it was. Um, but it was the only game that my old man missed. And I don't think you ever saw me beat the All Blacks again. The other, was in, other one was in uh, Hong Kong, I think it was, or Japan. So there you go. So, so, Robbo, talking about career, like I saw you play a lot of footy and you, you, you were exceptional, you know. You were, you were you know, you, you played loose at a... You played, but you played lucid a, a lot. Being the smaller man, you played some big tight heads, and you know, for mine, I, I don't know if you can recall this, but the test against England in two thousand eight in Twickenham, that must you know, for me, I was on the bench. I didn't even get on that test, but that that was retribution for a lot of years of a front row play that we've been through before, and to see you guys play so well and be part of that squad. How how, how did you enjoy two thousand and eight? in that win over England at Twickenham? Mate, I think, I think Stephen Moore got made in the match that game, didn't he? Um, yeah, probably. It, it was a special, special game. I remember the week leading up to it, I was still only fairly young at the time, that the press conference, normally they want all the flash guys, you know, they'll get Sterling Mortlock or those guys, and, and that test, they pulled up the whole front row in front of the press. And I thought, what's this about? You know, I was only fairly young, so I didn't know really how to speak, but there was just so much emphasis on the front row and what's happened and, you know, what happened previously. But, you know, it was it was such a great game. There was so much pressure on the game. I think we just stuck to our core values, um, worked hard together. We supported each other pretty well um, and had a ripper of a game as well. But, um, you know, I think talking about scrums, I think the, the Wallaby scrum was really unfairly sort of judged over so many years. Um you know, I came off the back um, of front work where I was working really, really hard. Um, and, and I suppose I wouldn't be where I am without the, with the guys before me. Those guys are really trained really hard during the week. Yeah, well, it's been lovely to chat. I mean, obviously, as a as a as a soft tackling back row for Patrician Brothers Fairfield, I wouldn't classify myself as one of the forwards of this podcast. But to have two props who are always the Broadway acts of the game having a chat together, just lovely to be uh, with you two guys tonight. We're going to have a chat soon, aren't we, Timmy? The, uh, the Eastwood Rugby Lunch. Yep, at the Eastwood Rugby Lunch. Yeah, and Maddie, there's tickets available. You uh, both proud Eastwood boys. Yeah, no, definitely tickets available at the Eastwood uh, Rugby dot com dot au website. Um, we should have 400 people there. It's going to be a great a great night. Uh, me and Ben will be on stage, so uh, hope it's reinforced, eh, Cat? And then um, and Timmy's up there too, so we'll need to, we'll need to we'll be all three of us. Come up with some new content. It's drying up, <laughs> yeah, boys. Maybe it's more my chat these days. We're going to need some heavy cement to support that stage, <laughs> gentlemen. It's been wonderful. Talk to you soon, Ben. Cheers, guys. Thank you. That's it for The Running Game this week. We'll be with you every week with more rugby chat and great interviews. Follow us on your favourite podcast app. Thank you, to, thank you to today's guests, Ben Robinson and David Begg. Thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Sports. And, of course, our wonderful producer, Mr Dan McHugh. See you next time, Matty. Thanks, Timmy. One of your best. Thanks, mate.